So today we're going to do the sermon time a little bit differently. Maybe that's partially because I just want to make sure that all of you stay awake uh, during the sermon time. But we're going to actually do kind of a Bible study style uh, message today as we align ourselves back together on what it means to be cross of life. Uh, Every beginning of the new year, I want to try to give us something that we have agreed upon as a congregation is going to be an identity marker for us. And then I want us to say, okay, if that's what the Bible says, we're going to hold on to that. We're going to hold each other accountable to it. This year's theme is back to the basics. So I want to focus on the things that are very fundamental about Christianity and what it means to be a church together. Uh, This year, we're going to study the book of Galatians, which is all about the gospel. We're going to study the Ten Commandments, which is God's law. We're going to be going through a section of Luke's gospel that is particularly focused on the power and importance of God's word. Uh, So we are going to just be focusing on all sorts of very basic, fundamental, foundational truths of Christianity this year. And so to start down that journey, today I wanted to focus on the basics of being a local congregation together. What does it mean to be a church? And to do that, I'm going to take you through uh, the last lesson of Faith Builders. So Faith Builders is the class that I give to people who are considering becoming part of our congregation. The last lesson is on cross of life and what it means to be part of our local congregation. So I'm going to go through that with you in a truncated form because usually it takes over an hour to go through it. My hope is to do it in only 40 minutes or so. Um, But what I want to do by bringing us all through this lesson is give us all the same understanding of what is the expectation of being a part of cross of life. Because it is... It is so obvious when expectations are not communicated well, because you can see one group of people or a pastor or a leader or somebody who is is speaking to an issue because they assume that there is a a universal acceptance of an expectation of our group, and and the people that they're speaking to have no idea that that's the expectation, and so they completely miss the point. And so what I'm I'm trying to do here is to to align us um, on expectations uh, for what it means to be a congregation together. Does that make sense? Now, what I would have loved to do today is printed off the Faith Builders lesson and given it all to you. Unfortunately, it turns out this is the week that our printer broke. So um, we'll get those printed uh, for next Sunday, hopefully, if the printer is fixed by this week. And I will email it out uh, with our news and notes this week. So before we do that, um, let me just pray for us quickly. God, we're going to try to align ourselves not on some standard of business practices or a personality, but on your word. And I pray that you would speak clearly to us today to help us do that. Amen. Okay, so the question is, what does it mean to be a local congregation? Uh, To do that, the place we probably need to start is with this word, church. Uh, Because when we hear the word church, I think very often we are tempted to think of a building. But the Bible does not really use the word that way. Uh, the, the English word church comes from the German word kirche, which just means the building. And so in English, the word has come to mean the space in which a congregation will meet. But the way the Bible uses this word is exclusively about people. Uh, literally, the word in Greek is ekklesia. It means to be called out. Um, and you may think of called out as in like uh, an accusation, like I'm calling you out. Um, that's not what it's talking about. It's literally to use your voice to bring people out of a place, right? If I would say like run, right? That would be calling you out of this place. Um, That's literally what the word means. And so in the Bible, the concept of a church are those people who have been called out of darkness into God's wonderful light, but have also come into an assembly together. And so usually the way colloquially the word is used is assembly or gathering. That means that the local congregation matters. 
Uh, there are two concepts in the Bible um, that uh, need to be held in tension. They are the concept of a big C church and a little C church is usually how we talk about it. Some people will talk about it as the visible church or the invisible church. These two concepts need to be held in tension because they're both true, but if we lose one, we lose part of what it means to be a Christian. So to define these terms a little bit, a little C church is a group of people who are organized into a local congregation based on a common understanding of the scriptures. This congregation will include people who believe and those who are hypocrites. So not everyone who sits in our pews on a Sunday morning is necessarily a Christian or necessarily believes everything that we teach. That's just going to be the case. People are sinful, they're ignorant, they are arrogant and refuse to believe things, just the natural way things work. In contrast, the big C church is what is often called the invisible or the universal church. All people everywhere who believe in Jesus Christ as their savior from their sin by grace through faith. These people can be in different little C churches, even if those churches teach some doctrines incorrectly. So you have a swath of churches in North America. Um, They teach different things about different things. Uh, Even in churches that might actually have official teachings that are contrary to the gospel. It is still possible for real Christians to exist in those churches because maybe a Bible is getting open and it's getting read and and a person might actually be ignorant of their own church's teachings, if that makes sense, and they're actually just hearing the word of God. Now, that doesn't mean we should excuse people being in churches that don't teach the truth, but we have to just be honest about this reality. So what we're talking about today is not this big C church idea. We're more talking about the little C church. Um, To give some foundation for this in scripture, we look at 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, It says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So you see, what is a church? It is a group of people who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, people who believe the gospel, right? But it is also expressed locally, the church of God in Corinth, right? So we are the church of God in Mississauga. Right? or the church of God that is called cross of life. Uh, there's a local expression of this greater reality. And then you also see at the end of this verse, together with all those, big C church. So the local congregation matters. That, that little C church that we're talking about matters. And so what I want to do now is just pose you this question. After seeing all this, listening to what scripture has to say, do you need to be active in a local congregation to be a Christian? Take a moment and think about that. Do you need to be active in a local congregation to be a Christian? The answer is yes. You do. Now, what somebody will push back on me and say is, no, what saves a person is faith alone. I'll say, yes, that is what saves a person. But getting saved is not the end of this game. Right? God saved you in order to live a new life. And while the forgiveness of sins, God's salvation gift to you in Christ is the mechanism, and it's a mechanism that you need to come back to time and time again because your unbelief will try to get you to forget it, it is the thing that brings you into a new life. And that new life is expressed in a local congregation. So can you get saved without the local congregation? Absolutely. Can you live the Christian life without the local congregation? No. You must be an active member in a local congregation if you're going to live the Christian life. So then we have to ask this question, what does that look like? How do I know if I'm an active member of a local congregation? Um, To do that, what I've decided to to sort of summarize the the Bible's whole teaching on this into is five vital signs. So I can't know your heart, I can't know your faith, absolutely. I have to just go by what I can see. In the same way that a doctor can't necessarily look inside and figure out all the chemistry, he can just start by looking at the symptoms. I can look at the symptoms of your life, so to speak, and I can see 
that maybe something is going wrong. And my hope is to expose these to you as well so that you yourself can look and say, am I healthy spiritually with these five vital signs? So the five vital signs are gather, group, grow, give, and go. Nicely alliterated for you. So we're going to walk through each of these and see what the Bible has to say about membership in a local congregation and what the expectations should be for us as a local congregation. The first of those is gather. Acts 2.42 says they, that's the Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And this is a summation of the early Christian church, the things that they valued. These four things are fundamental to being a local congregation together. The first of those is the apostles' teaching, which would be the word of God, right? Now, the apostles, of course, are no longer alive on earth, but their words still exist. Their teaching still exists. So it is the scriptures. So a local congregation will devote itself to the study of the scriptures. Secondly, it will devote itself to fellowship. Uh, When we hear fellowship, I think often we think like coffee and donuts after church. That's not fellowship. Fellowship comes from the English, old, old English fellow shape. So it is to live congruently or to have a life that's similar to another person. Maybe another way of saying this is doing the same things at the same time, right? So a local congregation will express itself by being in the same place, doing the same things at the same time. That is worship. It's more than that, though. It is living a life that cares about your lives. It cares about each other's lives. The third is the breaking of bread. This is the Lord's Supper. Uh, Some people will say, well, they're just talking about eating together. That's not good enough. Uh, The the Greek has a way of saying that we're just eating together, and it's not this. This is a a technical term for the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread that we do when we take Jesus' body, his blood, and the Lord's Supper together. So another fundamental element of Christian life together is the Lord's Supper. And then finally, to prayer. And uh, this word actually in Greek is not singular, it's plural. Uh, It should be prayers. And the prayers was, again, a technical term for public worship, what we're doing right now. Because what is public worship? It's basically just all prayers, (laughs) right? You pray when you sing and you pray when we pray and you pray when you confess your sins and you pray when you say the Apostles' Creed. You're praying the whole time, basically. It's different types of prayers, which is why it's called the prayers. That's what we're doing. So four things that make a gathering congregation, a study of the scriptures, a care for one another, life congruent with one another, eating the Lord's Supper together, and worshiping together. The last bit, though, I want you to see in this is this word right at the beginning. It says they devoted themselves to this. Uh, The Greek word here literally means to attach yourself to something. It'd be a similar word that we would say is probably active in a marriage relationship, right? I'm I'm devoting myself to, I'm, I'm orienting my life around a certain thing. The Bible says that's what marks a local congregation. And so very basically, gathering means attaching yourself to Scripture, other Christians, the Lord's Supper, and Sunday morning worship. And so here's a question. If that's the case, then why is online worship not properly Christian worship? You can actually, actually answer this one. I've been talking for enough, and I want to make sure you're all staying with me here. Why can it not be properly Christian worship? Good, yeah. Okay, so you're not gathering with other Christians. That's definitely part of it. The second part of it is can't take the Lord's Supper, right? It excludes other Christians and the Lord's Supper. That does not mean that online worship is not a good stopgap if you're out of town or you're sick, but it is not properly Christian worship, right? The Bible says something different. Here's another question based on this. How often should we attend worship based on what the scripture says, what you learned? You can answer this one too. How often should we attend worship? Regularly? 
That's good. This is, this is the answer that I had, devotedly, right? That's literally what the text says, devotedly. So, so much so that if a person would look at your life, they would have to say, he is devoted to fill in the blank. That guy is devoted to getting the Lord's Supper. That woman is devoted to being at public worship. Right? That, that guy is devoted to being in his Bible. Uh, these should be the marks of a Christian. This is what it means to gather. Okay, so let's gather. Next, let's do group. Paul has a section in 1 Corinthians 12 where he lists uh, a whole bunch of spiritual gifts, and he says that those spiritual gifts fit together. Um, Christians have different gifts. They're given different ways of being that God has, has knit them together in their mother's womb to be, and those things are supposed to fit together in a local congregation. That's what actually he's talking about. He finishes this section by saying this, now each of you, or excuse me, you are the body of Christ, and each of you is a part of it. That's what he summarizes this section with. You are the body of Christ, and each of you is a part of it. Now, here's the question. Um, excuse me, not that question. That's the wrong question. Uh, the question I wanted to ask was, is he speaking in metaphor or literally here? When he says this, is he speaking in metaphor or is he speaking literally? It's a hard one. <laughs> and there are good Lutheran pastors who would disagree with me on this. So you don't have to take this as the absolute, this is what the Bible for sure says, but I'll give you my case. I think it's literal. I think he's literally saying that. Because the chapter before this is the chapter where he said, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and said, this is my body. And he doesn't qualify the is there, and he doesn't qualify the is here. Now, again, he might be meaning it metaphorically, just saying it's nice that you all have different gifts and that you can fit together to work together. I'm, I'm pretty convinced personally he's talking literally that when we gather together as people who are indwelt by Christ and who are themselves in Christ, we come together as Christ. As Martin Luther said, we are Christ's with and without the apostrophe. With the apostrophe that we belong to Christ, we are Christ's without the apostrophe, that we together are little Christ's, little hands and feet and mouths of Jesus still living here, doing his work, proclaiming his message. As Jesus said, you will do even greater things than what I have done. And of course, he's not talking in forms of degree, but in quantity. So you together, Christians, will do way more work than I did in my three years of ministry here on this earth. So then here's the question. Can you really know Jesus apart from his body? And the answer is no. Right? I realize there are, is some cra there are some crazy people out there who do the whole online dating and then like get engaged before they've ever met in person. Those people can be excluded. In general, <laughs> when you're falling in love with somebody, you care about them deeply, you want to be with them in person because their body is part of the equation. It is who they are. To know Jesus, can you know him apart from his body? The answer is no. You can know about him in the same way that I can know about, pick some celebrity, right? But I've never met them. I've never been in their presence. I've never interacted with them. The same is true of Jesus. To experience Jesus is to experience his body, to be in group. That's why we emphasize life groups. This isn't just a thing that we do because like, we think it would be nice for you all to get along. It's because it's, it's an intimate, necessary part of your Christian life. Now you might say to me, okay, well, the other Christians in this congregation, they're not exactly Jesus. <laughs> and you're right. And yet they are. Because what did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to seek and to save what was lost. And when he indwells a person, that person, despite their sinful nature, is seen as perfect before God. 
And God gave us the tools to deal with when we're imperfect around each other, right? Forgiveness, grace, repentance, conviction, scripture. Uh, I, I think this is lost in our culture because we so want to believe that everything is individual, that I have my own relationship with God and that's it. The scripture says a different message. Christianity is done together. Uh, beyond this, there are 60, about 60, uh, one another passages in the Bible. Love one another, forgive, with one, forgive one another, bear with one another, all these sorts of things. If you don't have one another's around, you can't do those verses. You need one another's. So, what do we do? We group together. Now, life groups, of course, is the way that we do this. But really, this just means you have other Christians in your life who care about you and who ask you the tough questions, who support you and pray for you in the difficult times. They speak scripture to you. They are what Jesus would be to you, albeit imperfect, this side of heaven. Okay, so gather, group, grow. First Peter Peter writes, concerning this salvation, your salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Now, admittedly, there are some kind of long sentences in this section, but what are the, what's the basic point that Peter's trying to get across to you here? The prophets searched intently. The angels long to search intently into the scripture, the word of God. And if that is the case, if the prophets and the angels long to look into the things that have been revealed in the Bible, how ought we to regard studying the Bible? Is it optional? No. Now, there are lesser or varying degrees to which you're going to be able to study it based on your vocation. My vocation is as a pastor, which means I have the full-time job of studying the scripture. I'm going to be able to do it more than you. But that doesn't mean that it should be anything that we neglect. A study of scripture is a necessary part of the Christian life. And you can do this in any number of ways. A personal devotional life is a great way. Praying the Psalms and reading the Proverbs together. Being in a Bible study with other Christians. All really good things. But part of the Christian life has to be growing in the scripture. And I'll, maybe I'll just answer two uh, often uh, given excuses to this. One of them is, uh, it's hard. It's hard to read the Bible, right? You open it up and you're like, who even is Hezekiah? And, and what are all these laws for? And uh, it could be really a challenging book. Uh, here's my answer to that. Don't read the hard parts. Read the really easy parts like 50 times. And then go to the hard parts, and they'll make a whole lot more sense. Like, read the Gospels. If you haven't read through the Gospel of Mark at least five times in your life, start today. Read five times this year. Or read Luke, because that's what we're studying. But, like, read those easy parts, because they will give you so much more context and so much more familiarity with the concepts that will show up in the more difficult parts of Scripture. Um, The second I hear is, I don't have time. And my answer to that is, you have time for what you want to have time for, right? Right? And I realize some people may just have a super busy life for any number of really good reasons, and we can talk about that. But for the vast majority of us, we have time for what we want to have time for. And what I would ask us is, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, and we define that by Scripture, and we can't find time to read Scripture, what does that say about us? It might be time for repentance on this. Okay, so gather, group, grow, give. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Um, there are really two ways to understand this passage, and they're both right, and they're both good. On the one hand, Jesus could be speaking descriptively when he says this, right? He could say, well, if you have a treasure in a certain place, then you're going to care about that place, right? So if you have money in your retirement, you're going to care about what your retirement is going to look like. But he also could be speaking of it prescriptively. In other words, to say, if you want to care about something more, put your treasure there. You understand the distinction? Maybe a way to, to illustrate this is to think of the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer. A thermometer, right, tells you what is the temperature right now. A thermostat sets the temperature and says this is what the temperature will be. In the same way, where your treasure is, what you value, specifically in this context, he's talking about money. What you value will be shown descriptively, thermometered, by where your money goes right now. And so you could, we could look at your budget, and we probably could identify the things you care about the most. And you can use it like a thermostat. If you want to care about something more, you can put money into that thing, and you'll start caring about it a whole lot more. For example, online sports gambling just became legal in Ontario. Um, I'm not really into it, um, but I could see myself, maybe if I was single, I didn't have to worry about providing for a family or something, like putting a few bucks on a game just for fun. Let me tell you, if I put a few bucks on a game, I would care so much more about that game, right? But right now, if I watch the Leafs or the Jays or whatever, and they lose, that's ah, too bad, but I don't really care. But if I just lost 50 bucks on that, then I care, right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so when God asks us to first evaluate our lives and then think about what, what we want to value, he uses money as a really easy place to, to see a vital sign. To say, what do you value? Well, let me look at your budget. And then when you, when you realize how, how little you do value God, the things of God, to say, well, part of the process of growing into loving those things more is to put my resources into those things. And I will care about them more. Now, the great thing for us is that when God asks us to give offerings to our church, there are, well, really two really cool things about this. First of all, he doesn't give us an absolute mandate for how much we have to give. The Old Testament, there was a mandate. It was 10% to the work of the church and about 13 to 15% more for what we might call like social services, right, to other people. So the average Israelite in the Old Testament was giving away 25% of their income. Now, the New Testament has not required any of that of us, although we ought to think if if we know the salvation that God has won for us as clear, much more clearly than they do, why would our generosity be any less than theirs? Right? That's something we got to wrestle with. But again, no absolute mandate of how much you should give. Um, the second thing about it is when God asks us to give an offering today, he doesn't burn it, which is what he did in the Old Testament, right? He would say, bring your grain offerings or bring your lamb offerings or whatever it is, and then he would have you burn the things. For us, we bring our offerings and guess what we get to do? give them to people, right? To pay our pastors and to pay for a building for worship and to be generous with our community. Um, we're able to use the gifts that God has given us. Now, one thing is true about both the Old Testament and New Testament in this. God gets nothing out of our offerings. You see that? God says, bring this offering to me, burn it. I guess he says that's a pleasing aroma. I like the smell. But in the New Testament, same thing is true. Bring the money and then give it away. But it's not about God needing anything. It is about our neighbor needing these things. And so as you think about how you give your offerings, think not just about God, but then also think about your neighbor. Think about how much of a blessing our congregation can be to our community, 
how if we were able to give more in our offerings, we would be able to start new congregations, we would be able to hire new pastors or teachers or these sorts of things to do more of the work. Um, these things really matter. So why does God command us to give offerings? Because it is both a thermometer and a thermostat of our love for God. And I know there are some of you who really struggle with this. Um, uh, because it is really just uh, the, the God of money, of mammon, has really got its teeth into our, into our culture. What I would say is don't try to be a hero. <laughs> if you don't give any offerings right now, or you give very, very little in your offerings, and you hear me talk about 10, 25%, you're like, oh my goodness sakes. <laughs> Try this. Next month, or maybe this month, I guess it's the first day of the month, just give 1% more than what you were giving before. 1%. And then the next month, try one more percent. And the next month, try one more percent. And if it ever gets to a place where like you've given so much away that you actually can't live, then talk to us and we'll give you some of your offerings back so that you can actually live. But my guess is you will get a number of percentage points up before you even realize that it's really that bad of a gift. It's really that hard to give away. Okay, so of course we could say more on this, but we have to get to the fifth vital sign. So gather, group, grow, give, and finally go. First, uh, Romans 5, 1, 15 and 16 says, I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So of course, this is the ability to speak to other people about Jesus, right? Why do you think this would be a good vital sign to check? Is it because we just need to grow our organizations? I actually want your answer on this. What do you think? Why do you think our ability to talk about Jesus would be a good vital sign to check for our spiritual health? Okay, so has it affected us, right? Has it actually sunk down deep into our soul that, that God had to die to save me? And he did. Here's one other piece of this too, though. How well do we know the message? How, do we, how well do we know the scripture? So, one of the really interesting things that I just was turned on to, I'll use this because we're kind of in the season, um, is how, how quickly Christians particularly will, will take the stories of Scripture or the teachings of Scripture and they will essentially turn them into uh, a narrative that isn't perfectly aligned with Scripture. So, the example I, I want to use is Jesus when he's born. So the, the story that very often people tell themselves about what happened when Jesus was born is that Mary and Joseph were like rushing into Bethlehem and they're knocking on every door like, hey, can we come in? Do you have space for us? And, and that's probably not what happened. Uh, the Bible says that while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. So they were already there. They were already housed somewhere. Jesus, she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and laid him in a manger because there was no room in the inn is what most people hear when they hear the scripture. But that word inn is literally the same word that Luke uses later to talk about the upper room where Jesus gives the Lord's Supper to his disciples. It was just a separate room in the house that was maybe like we sort of think of it like a parlor or like a private gathering room. Um, it was part of the house. And so what, what the text is actually saying is Mary was already in a house and the time came for the baby to be born and she couldn't get any privacy. And so she went to what we would probably consider something like a garage, but of course they didn't have cars. They were for animals. It would be at least close to the house, if not connected to the house. And she laid him in a manger because they had no privacy. 
And all that is to illustrate, not that you should have known that or anything like that, or that you should throw away all your beautiful you know, 16th century German nativity sets or something like this, but for us to understand how quickly we'll tell ourselves a story about what Christianity is about without actually knowing what, it, what the Bible says. And I think if we, if we reduce our, our understanding of Christianity to God loves you, right? Which isn't false, but isn't complete. Or God died for your sins, which isn't false, but isn't complete. We're going to have trouble communicating to people what the Bible actually says. And so part of this is learning for ourselves what to say, and then also seeing the motivation of it actually working on ourselves. And I realize, like, not everybody is going to be, you know, an evangelist or we'll ask a question a little bit here. What if you're just not one of those people? Maybe it isn't speaking out there to all the people out there who don't believe in Jesus. It's just about speaking about Jesus in here. Like when we finish church, not talking about, you know, how was your New Year's party? Or how do you think the Leafs are going to do in the second half of the season? But like, what do you think about that verse that pastor interpreted? Do you think it was metaphorical or literal when Paul said the body of Christ? It'd be really cool if we would, we would have that be kind of the flavor of our conversations. So a couple questions on this. What if you're just not one of those people? <laughs> um, I would say, first of all, let me introduce you to two of my friends. Their names are Moses and Jonah. Uh, Moses literally said, I can't, talk about, I can't talk about your word to people. And God said, watch me. And then Jonah ran the other direction when God told him to talk about him. And eventually, of course, became a missionary to a city that, of hundreds of thousands of people um, and saved them. So if you can't really talk to people, go meet those guys. But let's just, for the sake of argument, say there is actually like someone here who really can't talk to people about Jesus. Then I would say be obsessed with making it possible for others to talk about Jesus. Like if that means taking on like extra office work from my plate so that I have more time to do Bible studies and more time to do evangelism. Or if that's being generous with your offerings, not just to Cross of Life, but to our church bodies. uh, um, education system for pastors and teachers, or if that means putting up a little bit extra money so that we can bring a vicar into our congregation in the coming years and fund that. Um, man, amazing what things we can do, uh, even if we're somebody who is not particularly gifted as a speaker about God's word. Okay, so those are five vital signs. Now, I want to talk a little bit about what I talked with the kids about, and that's my expectations. <laughs> right? So those are the expectations for you. This is what it means to be local congregation together. Gather, group, grow, give, go. What is a pastor supposed to do in a local congregation? First of all, we have to dispel a couple myths of what a pastor does. I would call these the typical big church myth and the typical small church myth of what a pastor does. A typical big church myth is that the pastor is the celebrity. He's the guy that everybody comes to see. Come and see my pastor. My pastor is really great. If your pastor is up on the stage and there are nice, beautiful lights and everything is, is almost theatric in its, in its character, um, then your pastor can turn into almost like a show that you watch, right? in the same way you turn on your TV and watch a show, and at the end you say, well, that was interesting. I'm going to go back and do the dishes now or something like that. Um, we can't have that attitude. right? When, when I, I'm up here and speaking, listen to me like you would listen to God. Not because I'm God, but because I'm speaking God's words. The second half of this, or the other side of this, is the typical small church uh, pastor myth, and that is that he is kind of the program director, right? He's the guy who organizes everything and makes sure everything goes. Um, That's just not the role of the pastor, right? The the congregation is organized together, calls the pastor to be the guy who gives God's word and sacraments to them. So it's neither of those. So what is the biblical standard then? Well, first, uh, Ephesians 4 tells us that God gave pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. 
So one of my jobs is to equip you, to give you the word, to teach you how to speak it, to encourage you to pray the Psalms, to read the Proverbs, to grow in how you speak about these things. The second thing then is very direct. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage. These three things are fundamentally what the pastoral office is about. Preaching the word. That's what I'm doing right now, but it's also what I do during Bible studies. I meet you for counseling, that sort of thing. Second, be prepared in season and out of season. That means I am constantly trying to learn more about the scripture for your sake. Um, Part of my schedule is just to be listening to podcasts and reading articles and reading books and trying to learn more so that I can be as prepared as possible to apply the word of God to you. And third, correct, rebuke, and encourage. Um, This is the hardest one because this gets in your personal space, right? When I'm up here, I'm just preaching and you can go home and you don't have to listen to me. (laughs) And when I'm in my office studying, you don't even have to talk to me. But part of my job is to correct, rebuke, and encourage. Um, And if you want a pastor, if you want a real biblical pastor, he's going to correct you and rebuke you and encourage you. I'm going to say, that's wrong. That's not okay. You can't live like that. And of course, I will encourage you with the gospel, but you've been saved from that. You've been wiped clean by the blood of Jesus. You live a new life now. That only happens if we have a personal relationship to do that, right? And so one of the reasons that we lo- I love the small congregation that we have and why I hope if we plant more congregations, they're always small. And so we can have this kind of pastoral attention where I know your life well enough to correct, rebuke, and encourage you. So keep meeting with me for yearly spirituals. That's a valuable thing. But then also be willing to say, like, I'm not correcting, rebuking, and encouraging you because I love it. I'm doing it because that's what God's word tells me to do. Okay, question then. How can we understand the role of the pastor? There are three images that the Bible gives us, father, doctor, and shepherd. So we already talked about doctor, right? You tell your doctor personal intimate details that you wouldn't tell anybody else probably, and he gives you advice about how to handle your body. The same is true for your pastor. You're going to be honest with me and open with me about your spiritual life, and I'm going to help you navigate that. Someone is father. Um, We don't obviously call our pastors fathers. That is a characteristic of the Catholic Church, for example. But it's a good characteristic. Uh, The Bible talks about pastors as fathers. And think about what fathers do. Fathers set the culture for their family and expect their children to obey that culture. Why? For the sake of the children, right? Um, It is a modern idea that we have children in order to make ourselves feel good. The Bible talks about having children as a blessing, but that parents are responsible for raising those children. The same is true for me with you. I set the tone of this congregation for the sake of raising you up to be spiritual adults. And that means sometimes I'm going to have to say, that's not how we behave in our house. And you're going to have to listen. And that's really hard for modern Western people because we want to believe that my relationship is with me and Jesus and nobody else, not even the pastor. I'm sorry, it's not biblical. If we're going to be biblical Christians, then we expect our pastor to act like a father. And that means discipline. It also means, I hope, as much as I can muster it, unconditional love. And if I'm not showing that kind of warmth to you, um, I need to work on that. And so please help me. Um, But I want you to know how deeply I love you so that when I do have to correct, rebuke, and encourage, you understand where it comes from. The last one is shepherd, and I think it's actually the most beautiful one and probably the best known one because the word pastor is literally the Latin word for shepherd. What does a shepherd do? Watches over the flock while the flock does what? Nothing. (laughs) They eat, yeah, right? They don't do anything, which is the beauty of the gospel. You don't have to. 
Just exist. Christ has made you alive. He has made you immortal. You will live forever. And I'm here just to make sure that his word stays present among you so that that life never falls away from you. It's not about accomplishing a whole lot or about growing our organization or becoming this this well-oiled machine. It's just existing in Christ and enjoying the gospel together. So those are the expectations for us as a congregation and the expectations for me as a pastor. And that should, I think, set at least the tone for what it basically means to be a local congregation. You don't have to do any of these things. But they are what the Bible says a Christian congregation will do. And so let's encourage ourselves in these things. Let's be devoted to these things. Let's hold each other accountable for these things. And let's repent and forgive one another when we fail at these things. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for bringing us together as this local congregation at this time. It's a group of people that in any other context would never have gathered together. Uh, We have so many things that are different about us, different personalities, different backgrounds, different cultures, different ethnicities, different ages, different values in many cases. And, And yet you have brought us together as your body in this place. And so we pray that you would lead us to give, go, gather, group, and grow in your word and in community for the sake of the people who will come after us and inherit this congregation and the community around us will see your love exuding from this place. I pray that you would make me a faithful pastor, that you would keep giving me your word, your Holy Spirit to guide me, that I would correct, rebuke, and encourage your people, that I'd be prepared in season and out of season and boldly proclaim the word. And if it is your will, allow us to grow during this year, both in our faith and in our numbers. Bring more people into this fold, that we may love them and include them in the body that you have made us. Amen.